In today's world, there's no telling exactly who's in charge of a company's IT department. Is it the CTO? Sometimes. But what about the CIO? Yep, they're often the IT czars too. But at Checker, it's neither. Instead, the IT department falls under the jurisdiction of Corey Louie, Checker's chief trust and security officer. Corey's path to technology was definitely not straight, but no matter what his job was, there was always a common theme. From law enforcement to the Secret Service to working at Google, Dropbox, and even in the White House, everywhere Corey went, he pursued a higher purpose. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Corey takes us through his life and career and gets deep in the weeds about how technology is changing how security is done across industries. Enjoy this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are not in studio, but on location. Corey, what's going on? Good. How are you? Good. We're at, so is this Checker's co-headquarters or is it like the HQ? This is Checker HQ1. Um, we are actually about to launch uh, on Friday, uh, Checker HQ2 in Denver, Colorado. Uh, what a world, huh? Um, I love, I've lived in Denver and uh, and I love sunny San Francisco. So it's good to be about uh, 20 something floors up. We won't say exactly how many and talking about all things trust and security. But first, how'd you get into technology? Yeah, I think my, my, my path to technology hasn't exactly been traditional. Um, it, um, it's my, my career actually started in law enforcement, um, as a secret service agent. Um, but while I was a secret service agent, I had volunteered to be part of a program called the electronic crime special agent program. Um, in a nutshell, they were teaching us to be hackers, to go after the hackers. And that kind of propelled me into technology. At the same time, just growing up here in the Bay Area, um, a lot of my friends were getting into um, technology. And so a lot of them were uh, have, getting degrees in computer science, working for, at the time, unknown startups, um, which are now well-known brands. Um, so I think by osmosis, um, I think technology kind of bled into me. Um, also, as a kid, um, I was a, a fairly big gamer. Um, I was also very curious and like took apart and built uh, different computers to kind of like max them out and optimize them for gaming. Um, and so I think I've always kind of had technology in my blood. And then I think after my my time at Secret Service, um, obviously going into Google, that kind of really propelled uh, me into technology. So what was your favorite game then uh, back in the, from back in the day? Oh, man. Um, I don't even remember. It's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, but no, I remember playing like things like Dune and like this was like pre mm-hmm. like first person shooter. This yeah. is more kind of like, you know, immerse yourself in like SimCity World, for yeah. example. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I remember playing Dino Park Tycoon. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a great game. Yeah. I remember uh, Oregon Trail. Oh, yeah. Oregon Trail is the best. <laughs> I uh, I remember uh, I got I my highest setting or the highest score I ever got. Uh, my mom and I on on Oregon Trail, we finally did it with like farmer or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, and I put I was like, I want this to be in honor of Jerry Rice. And so my, my thing said Jerry Rice. Nice. You're a Jerry Rice fan. Yeah. Huge Jerry Rice fan. Me too. He's the best. Me See? too. Um, yeah. No, that was. Uh, yeah. He's the best. Have you met him? Uh, I have not. 
Uh, I've met him a few times. I've how how times. is it? He seems like the nice guy ever. Uh, I've, I've ran into him at restaurants, I think, just oh, in the Bay yeah. Area. I think I ran into him in, in Tahoe once, too. Um, and then uh, my dad's a big 49ers fan as well. Same and so, with my mom. You know, I think we, we went to that last game at Candlestick. Um, where they had a lot of the legends come yeah. and they played again to then, um, yeah, it, it was fun. It was fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, still a Bay Area Niners fan, Warriors fan, Giants fan, no matter how, how good or bad they're doing. Well, no, it's, it's a really important thing, I think, because especially, um, I, I felt the same way when, you know, growing up in Oakland and leaving to go into the military, we're like, I was around technology growing up. Yeah. Like we had a computer lab at my school. Like yeah. I, I had all these like gifts that you don't realize looking back and just being around so many people that were around technology. Um, and people are always like, oh, well, but you're from Silicon Valley. I'm like, no, I wasn't. I was from Oakland. Like yeah. you don't ever go. I went to Stanford once in my whole childhood. Like yeah. you just don't do stuff like that. And I think, you know, a lot of times you get later in your career and it's like, oh, well, you were you were kind of born there. And you're like, yeah, but I went in the army or for you, you know, yeah. I went in the Secret Service. Yeah. Like I wasn't exactly like, you know, born and bred in tech. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting also is when you talk about Bay Area sports and tech is that, you know, people like Joe Montana now who has has a has a fund um, yep. and they're investing in tech companies now. And then you have people like Andre Iguodala, who's yep. also kind of like very interested in investing into technology. And so it's great to see some of the, the sports money and sports influence um, and that connection between sports and technology. Yeah. And I think it also, you know, it brings me to the point of, of trust. Um, because I think so many of these athletes have a really, you know, trusted brand, trusted reputation, and they're going to, you know, startups and saying like, like, why would they want to be on the cap table? It's like people, they're a mega world global brand and people trust them. So if we can kind of, you know, borrow off some of that, you know, you obviously trust is, is core to what uh, you're building a checker. Um, why did you choose chief trust and security officer as your title? Yeah, um, I think trust is fundamental to security. I think security is a subset of trust. Trust to me is security, privacy, and compliance, all of those things together. And so a lot of people's titles today are either chief information security officer, mm -hmm. chief security officer, chief privacy officer, chief risk officer. To me, all of that is trust. And so I think you're going to see a lot more chief trust and security officers, uh, much like you see a handful of chief security officers, and you see a lot of chief information security officers. But I think as chief information security officers develop, they start taking on more things with privacy. They start becoming more customer facing. They start um, working with marketing and branding uh, related to trust. And so you'll see a lot more chief trust and security officers. You'll see a lot more trust pages uh, for companies, which really, I think, summarizes um, the trust profile yeah. um, that a brand wants to present to the world. So I think it is the future, I think, of of security, privacy, compliance is melded into this thing called trust. Yeah. And I think there was a lot, there was probably a time there where, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, where there was kind of just a default level of trust for, you know, people around the products, the services, things like that. Now with, you know, kind of breach after breach, you know, the most famous obviously being the Equifax, you know, everybody's checking to see if they got hacked to get their 125 bucks. Right. I mean, this is like, at the forefront of the conversation and companies I feel like are starting below zero. Like you have to now earn this trust. Um, what do you think are, you know, from your, your career so far working in amazing companies, like we work in Google and uh, the white house Dropbox, we'll get into all that stuff. But um, what do you think that, you know, off the top that 
CIOs, CTOs, people can do to start to build more trust with their audience, with their community, with their users? I think there is, trust means different things to different people. And I think it starts with first building trust within your company um, as a start. Then you start thinking about trust outside of your company and how the world views you. I think you're exactly spot on is that there was an assumed trust in the past um, and it started at 100. I think today it probably starts at zero or somewhere in between. And you have to not only earn it, but you have to maintain it. And it's something that's very brittle. One little mistake, whether it be a fault of yours as a company or not a fault of yours, it's going to have an impact on that trust. And having to like claw your way back up um, sometimes can be difficult. And so you not only have to earn it, but you also have to maintain it. And a lot of that has to do with the maturity of how you think about trust. And it also has to do with not only what you do, but is that verified? Um, there's a concept of trust but verified. Yeah, no, totally. Um, it, I think it comes from the audit world. Yeah. Um, and you can say all the things you do, but you have to prove it now. And one of the ways to do that is through a third-party validation, um, whether it be an audit, whether, whether it be an attestation, whether it be a pen test, um, just something where it's not just you as a person, you as a team, you as a company saying you're doing certain things. Um, someone else is actually looking at that and saying, yes, I agree. I validate that they're actually doing those things and they're doing it well. For those of our listeners who don't know, um, share more about what is Checker and, and your role there, uh, what you're working on. Sure. Uh, my role at Checker um, is multifaceted. It's a combination of the operational um, work that needs to be done uh, for security, privacy, and security compliance. Um, it's also the product strategy and direction related to trust and safety and trust and security and trust in people. I also have under my responsibility um, what we call corporate engineering, uh, formerly known as IT, um, which is very interesting. Um, I think sometimes the organization is the other way around where you yeah. have a CISO reporting to a CIO. But here we made the decision to flip it around, um, which totally in my mind makes sense um, just because security teams work so closely with IT teams anyway. Um, and so instead of having potential in addition to prioritization conflicts and, and or just different goals, um, now we just have a shared mission and shared values and shared goals as a, a whole department. Yeah, totally. Um, I also own physical security as well. Um, it's just part of that trust profile. And then I think um, part of it is also just, you know, assisting with sales, assisting with marketing um, and really taking checkers to the next level. Um, I think we're known today for background checks, um, but I think the future for checker is bright. Um, the opportunity there is our, our beyond background checks. And so just working with the executive team on our strategy on how to grow not only and innovate in background checks, but also beyond that as well. And I think your role is very emblematic of like the CIO of the future, right? Is like if you were to say... For, to use the the phrase, you know, the seat at the table. Like how big is Corey's seat at the table? It's like, it's huge because you touch so many different parts of the organization. I think that's what a lot of CIOs either have now in their role or they aspire to be that because they're touching the business so much and the employee experience and the customer experience um, and you know, trust and security, like trust, like you said, is a layer on top of customer experience and on top of employee experience. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a huge responsibility um, that, that I'm, I'm happy to take on. And I think others at other companies also have a similar responsibility. They may not have the same title um, and that may change in the future. But I think when you 
when you meld all these things together, where it's no longer just an operational responsibility, it's also a strategic responsibility. It's also a responsibility that transcends all the different business units um, and really defines your brand and your product. It's an awesome thing. And like I said, it's very brittle and we have a huge responsibility to protect all this very sensitive data that we deal with and other companies deal with as well. And I think what makes Checker different and unique, which really attracted me to join, is the fairness aspect, um, is that we are really utilizing technology uh, to empower decisions for fairness. Um, a lot of people think about background checks as actually keeping the bad out. Um, that's part of it. Um, but another part of it is how do we actually empower decision makers with the right type of data to yeah. make more fair decisions on hiring. Um, and that's, I, I think, eliminating that for me, bias, things yes. like that. Um, taking out subjectivity, I think what makes Checker unique as well is traditionally in the background check world, um, it was a lot of manual work, a lot of manual matching, a lot of manual decisions made. And I think if you can apply technology to that, um, you're moving towards reducing some of those biases, reducing some of that subjectivity, um, and really making it more efficient. You said in the past that you always pursue opportunities that have a higher purpose. Um, what about Checker do you feel like is that mission or that higher purpose um, that's going to be doing amazing stuff for us in the future? Yeah, I, I think it's a few areas. First is that I know a lot of companies say they're mission driven. Checker really means it. Um, we have our mission to build a fairer future by improving understanding of the past. Um, and that's it's even on awesome here. It's, liter- it's, it's written on the wall in front of us. So I, I noticed it as soon as I came in. Yes, it's uh, actually um, posted all over our office. Yeah, core values with hashtags uh, and the uh, the rotating checker guest password, which I can't share, but now it changes because <laughs> Corey's on the watch. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, mission driven, I think strong values. And it's not only our executive team, but I think all of the people who work here really kind of live by this mission and live by these values. And it's very rare, in my opinion, to see a tech company that actually fundamentally helps people's lives yeah. and and really empowers people to be at their best. And it was just an opportunity that I personally couldn't pass up. Um, I think that's why a lot of people have joined Checker now and will join Checker in the future because you actually want to be a part of something that you can go home and feel good about yourself because their direct impact on people is real and tangible. I want to talk about kind of like your customers, what you're doing. The, the last numbers I saw was that you're doing something like 1.5 million background checks a month uh, for over 10,000 customers. I would love to learn just like about the different kind of use cases for who's using your product, what types of people are using it, um, because it seems like security at an organization is owned by so many people, you know, first and foremost, like the CEO. So I'm just curious, like, what are the types of of customers, big and small, that you're you're talking to? Sure. Um, I I think that Checker is well known for having partners in the on-demand and gig economy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the on-demand and gig economy realized how quickly they needed to do the analysis of risk on people. The slow turnaround time from traditional background checks just wasn't sufficient for them. And so I think Daniel and Jonathan realized that um, when they worked at a on-demand and gig economy company. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so from that, they said, you know, how can we actually make this better? 
um, and hence the founding of Checker. And I think when you speak the same language also um, from a technology perspective of your customers um, and you understand what their problems are and can actually develop very targeted solutions um, that are actually valuable, um, that resonates, um, I think, with the on-demand and gig economy. Not only does it resonate with, with that vertical, but I think any company, um, no matter if it's an SMB, an enterprise company, you name it, everyone wants to hire people more quickly and yeah. hire the right people more quickly. Yeah, I mean, speed is the currency of, uh, especially in, in startups, but in any small business, like you just don't have the resources. Yeah. So, so I think, I think we're in the middle of an evolution on how we think about trusting people. I think we're in an evolution of growth of all companies, no matter what type of um, their focus is. The faster we can get people contributing to society, contributing to a company and working, the better for everyone. Yeah. And and I think it's something that if you are a you know CIO and HR comes to you and says, like, hey, you know, we need to revamp how our, our you know, background checks, for example, you know, there's a million things that you need to consider with this, right? And if you don't have a strategy in place already, like that trust strategy in place, uh, you're just going to be at a huge disadvantage. Yeah, I think it's very interesting the different personas that think about and are responsible for background checks. Sometimes it's within the HR or people teams. Sometimes it's within a growth team. Sometimes it's within a trust and safety team. Sometimes it actually may be insecurity. But you know, I, I think that there needs to be more strategic planning behind how you actually evaluate people on the front end um, through a background check, but also how do you then manage people ongoing yeah. um, as well? Um, we have a product called Continuous Check, um, which addresses that. But I think people are realizing that you have to actually manage your people on an ongoing basis. You can't just do it at a point in time, uh, much like with security. Um, you can't just look at security at a point in time. It's an ongoing and continuous thing. And so the, the concepts are the same. And so I actually... You know, I, I encourage CIOs, I encourage chief security officers and CISOs to have a conversation um, with your chief people officer, your chief, chief HR officer, um, whoever leads your people team, whoever is in charge of background checks to really sit down and think about a longer term strategy that potentially involves technology to improve efficiency, to improve quality and really to improve speed to kind of help your company grow. Well, and I think. You know, one of the things we talked about with uh, with Kathy Polinsky, the CTO of Stitch Fix, was this idea that, like, you know, if you fill out eight of the 10 things for Stitch Fix, even though you get done faster, the person was actually less satisfied. Right. So you have these growth teams that are trying to figure out the fastest way, like everything, you know, especially now you have, you know, things where how can we get the customer in the door as fast as possible? You could sign up for a SaaS product that's, you know, an enterprise SaaS product now online, but there's a trade-off to that, right? So if the growth team wants to bring on, you know, they have two, two sides of a marketplace, they need to bring on the supply side versus the demand side. They want to do that as fast as possible. That might be 100% at odds with the customer experience down the road because those people that they're onboarding are the wrong people. If you don't have a framework in place to vet that stuff, it's your whole reputation of your brand. That trust is going to be destroyed when those people aren't the right people. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we always have pressures on bringing people on board, uh, no matter what scenario, whether it be an on-demand company, whether it be an enterprise, whether it be at the White House. Um, we are constantly looking to increase the speed 
of doing that evaluation process through a background check, um, through a suitability screening and an adjudication of the information you get. But what I always say is you can have speed, but you cannot compromise on compliance. You cannot compromise on accuracy and you cannot compromise on quality. We buried the lead on you being the CISO of the White House. Um, I'm just so it seems like you were the right guy for the job. You're a Secret Service agent. I mean, who better, right? Um, I'm sure that gave you a leg up, plus your time at, at Google and Dropbox and everything. Um, what was that experience like? What did you learn moving from tech and then in, back into the government sector? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was an awesome experience. Uh, to be honest, I was, I was a little hesitant at first um, <laughs> because when I had left the Secret Service, in my mind, I actually thought I would never go back to the government. You know, I spent about nine years in tech, um, both at Google and Dropbox. And when the White House opportunity came up, I, I at first said no, because I felt I still had a lot of work to do at Dropbox. Um, at the same time, you know, I told myself that I would never go back. But then the more I thought about it, there is a huge need, uh, not just here in the U.S., but I think in all governments, to apply the concepts of technology, speed, efficiency, and a different leadership style to the government. Um, and you, you also almost need to run the government as efficiently as you run a business. Absolutely. Um, and so for me, that became more and more compelling. And then just the opportunity, you know, as a Secret Service agent, you see a lot of things. Obviously, you're, you're around the, the president, the vice president, former presidents a lot based on, on, on your duties. And you get a limited view of, of this bubble, we call it, um, where you're protecting the bubble. But when you're part of the White House itself, you're now inside the bubble. What was funny was um, when I had first started with the White House, um, I would see my, some old colleagues that are still with Secret Service today. And they're like, hey, Corey, did you did you come back to the Secret Service? And I was like, no, I'm at the White House now. And it was just it blew their minds yeah. um, because now I was inside the bubble. And so I had deep visibility into the inner workings, um, not only of the White House, but, but really the entire government. Um, and really had an opportunity to apply a lot of the things that I learned at Google and at Dropbox, even in college as well. Just a lot of the things that I learned on how to actually be a good leader and how to apply that in the government world, how to actually apply technology uh, where it made sense, how to actually introduce concepts like automation and orchestration to actually reduce manual processes. Um, and so it was an awesome opportunity. It wasn't just an awesome opportunity in peer information security. Um, it was also an opportunity for me to learn at the White House about personnel security. And so it wasn't initially in, I guess, my areas of responsibility. But as we were restructuring um, how we manage information security and even physical security technology at the White House, um, I was also asked to take over what's called the White House Personal Security Office. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is the team that does all the background checks, essentially, for the White House. And um, I happily accepted that because it's the same type of concepts. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it's um, how do you manage the, the risk and trust of people, kind of similar like how you manage the risk and trust of data um, and devices um, in InfoSec. And how can we actually make those processes more efficient? Um, and so much like in other parts of the government, there's a lot of manual processes in order to do things. And so I think we made a lot of changes while I was there as uh, utilizing technology in a better way, um, taking, looking at operational inefficiencies and making them more efficient and just reducing that turnaround time. Um, I would say on average um, in government world, whether we go to White House or anywhere else, it probably takes anywhere for six to 18 months to finish a background check. Yeah. Um, 
That's, oh, I've done it. I've yeah. done secret clearance, so I know. Yeah, that, I know the deal. That's unacceptable, I think, in in private industry to to take that long to actually evaluate someone's someone's risk and trust. Um, and so, I think we did a good job of reducing that turnaround time. But like I said earlier, without compromising quality, without compromising compliance, and without compromising accuracy. Well, I think from my time in the military, one of the big things that I saw was that the framework that a lot of the military uses for certain things uh, or the government is like tried and true for a long time. But the way that technology enables that framework is the thing that was lacking, right? It's like, you know, we have how we shoot a howitzer, you know, hasn't changed in you know, 20 years. But we use cutting edge technology like on the battlefield, for example, but we don't we weren't necessarily always using cutting edge technology for, you know, cloud storage. Yeah. Right. And then but what you realize is that like that eight, six to 18 months, um, a lot of that comes down to, you know, like employee processes, just like what are the tools that the employees are using to get their job done faster? Yeah, I, I think the government can learn a lot from how we just do things in private industry in, in all aspects. Um, I would say very particularly in background checks is that we, we shouldn't be complacent just because it, that's how it's been done for however many years doesn't mean it has to be done in the future that way. Um, and so I think that as we we continue to expand um, checkers partnerships. Um, you know, I'm more than happy, um, especially based on my background and what I've seen, um, to take some of the technology that we have at Checker and see if it can be applied to the government, whether it be the U.S. government or governments outside of the U.S. You worked for a bunch of presidents. We got to know what was your kind of framework as you'd have going to each new president as like a new leader, you know, similar to like having a new CEO, obviously, you know. Most important CEO, uh, arguably. Um, what was your mindset from a security standpoint to convince, and not just president, but you know all the people around you, like what the framework was for security and the why behind the way that we do things. Yeah, I think it's similar whenever I join a new organization, no matter where it is, or if leadership changes as an organization, it starts with, I think, building rapport and building trust, whether it be that leader and or that executive or the executive team, um, to make sure that we're on the same page on how we think about trust. And, and once you have that established, it's then really looking at doing a maturity assessment. Um, what does that look like? Um, and it's different no matter where you go. And then when you have a leadership change, that maturity assessment could change as well just because the knowledge and experience and, and familiarity is just not there. Um, so sometimes you're starting from scratch um, and sometimes you're starting in the middle or sometimes you're starting at a very high level, which is awesome. Um, but we're not that lucky. And yeah. so it was a lot of education. Um, and then it was really prioritizing, kind of really seeing the areas that really needed a lot more attention based on priority and based on risk. Um, and then really kind of addressing those first and then getting to the other things. So when you're sitting back in the White House, you know, did you have the moment with, you know, when you went back to your family and it was like, you know, the kid who grew up in San Francisco, you know, like, what was it like to go back and be like, hey, I'm, I'm CISO of the White House. You know, I'm sure they were probably shocked when you went to the Secret Service to begin with. And then, you know, at Google and all this sort of stuff. Like, was there a certain sense that, yeah, in your in your hometown community that like, how the heck did Corey make it out, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, people ask me questions all the time. Um, some, some questions I can answer 
in a very generalized way. Some I can answer very specifically. Others, I tell them, you know, I can't answer for, for obvious reasons, or I tell you, I might have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, all joking aside. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, a lot of the experiences that I, I experienced, I, I try to generalize. And um, even if I can't talk about it, I try to talk about it in a generalized way. And it, I guess it's a curiosity. It's a curiosity that people have of the unknown. And so when you're part of this world of the unknown, whether it be at the White House, unknown of like how a company does security on, on, on the back end, um, people are just so curious about it and they ask you a lot of questions. I think in the trust world, you have to be careful. Because if you talk about things in too much detail, you could potentially be sharing information that could be used against you. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, at the White House, you know, you, we we have top secret clearance for a reason, um, and that is you are trusted um, with some of the the most sensitive information um, out there. And so, you have to be very careful on how you answer questions about that. Um, and so, you know, I think it was it was an awesome feeling to kind of come back and have all these people ask me all these questions. And um, you know, I, I wish I could tell the world everything I know but I simply can't. Uh, but it is refreshing when you see somebody from that world that you worked in with that world and um, you know you can't talk about some things. Um, and the memories, I think, are always going to be with me. Um, and I look forward to the day, you know, when I have my own children and grandchildren where, you know, I can tell them all these stories and they probably want to be believe, believe me. Yeah, totally. Um, and I actually have nothing to show them either to like prove it. But yeah, it, it's one of those things that as a security professional, um, it's a blessing and a curse. You get exposed to all these things at the same time. Um, you actually can't talk about certain things and you actually have to internalize it. And um, that's a lot of pressure. Um, I think security people in all organizations are under a lot of pressure. And um, how we deal with it um, is really kind of a, a signature of you as a person. Do you have like a network of peers that you go to and, and talk to about this sort of stuff? Um, be able to share kind of those best practices and talk about the stuff that other people can't talk about? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that I kind of grew up with, so to speak, in the security community who started out at like very entry level positions and are now CISOs, are now leaders at different companies, now chief security officers or chief trust officers at different companies. Um, and actually coming up next week um, is what we all call um, um, security security week in the desert um, <laughs> with Black Hat and DEF CON yeah, yeah, um, next right. week. And so it's an opportunity for all of us. So we all know that we'll see each other there. Um, we'll, we'll go to all the different briefings. We'll go to the different events. Um, we're all recruiting the same people, trying to steal people from each other and yeah. the, the talent. Um, but it's also a time, like you said, for us to, to talk shop, to sometimes vent, um, or to actually talk about ideas. Um, and so it's, a, it's an awesome thing to know that you have this support system in the security community, and that should expand. And it's funny you bring that up because as I speak to more trust and safety teams, um, at some of the companies we work with and partner with today, that type of community on the cybersecurity and information security community isn't as strong in the trust and safety community. And so a lot of people who work in trust and safety today have evolved from doing trust and safety in the digital world, yeah. uh, managing abuse, managing fraud at different um, tech companies um, or finance companies. Now what you're seeing is those people are being asked to actually have more of a physical component uh, to their responsibility as well. So you use the same technology that you use for anti-fraud, for anti-abuse, and now you're actually layering this physical component on top of that. So it's another layer of complexity for us to deal with, but it's a, it, it's a, it's a world that is, is uncharted. I relate it actually to the insider threat programs. So in government, insider threat programs really kind of took off post uh, Snowden revelations. 
Um, in private industry, it hasn't really taken off as much. And so insider threat, if you have the right platform or tool for that, what it does, it actually takes disparate data sources, um, whether it be from network activity, from device signals, from badge access logs to personnel performance. It kind of pushes everything in in, in SIEM, so to speak, um, and looks at everything and actually provides insights to you so you can get a better feel for potential risk within your organizations. And so I actually think that's the future. I think background checks is a component of that. I think what we already do in cybersecurity is a component of that. I think what we do in physical security technology and the data we collect there is also a component of this. And so I think the future of trust and people and what data you need to actually build those insights um, is still uncharted territory. And I'm super excited to be here at Checker because I think we can actually help in that area. Yeah, we talked to... um someone who runs the facilities for a huge technology company. And one of the things he was saying is he was like, everybody's resistant to doing eye scanning, but he's like a physical security badge is exponentially more dangerous to the company than, than getting your eyes scanned. He's like, that would actually make your company safer. Whereas someone like, you know, you watch the movie where they like, do whatever, knock out the person and take their badge and scan in. Uh, and the person's, you know, not looking at, you know, the person's face when they scan the badge, like that is way less safe. Do you think that there is just some amount of kind of big brother is watching or some hesitancy around like certain security measures that people are just not, un- not comfortable with yet, even though it's like clearly in our best interest? Yeah, I think from a security lens, there has to be a balance between the use of new validation techniques such as facial recognition or biometrics. And so there hasn't really been this this growth, massive growth of using biometrics and facial recognition, at least here in the US. Um, you have seen that grow in other parts of the world. But I think there is, you, ha- you really have to think about all aspects of that, the ethical considerations, the privacy considerations. And so me personally being a balanced security person and with a balanced mindset, I see the benefits of deeper validation techniques such as facial recognition or biometrics. But at the same time, I also understand the privacy concerns behind that. And so until you can address that, you actually cannot deploy something that's going to have a lot of unknowns and a lot of worry and concerns about. Uh, and you have to actually be very transparent on what you're doing with that data, how, how you store it, and what else is being used for. And so I think in today's world, um, as a peer security person, you would want to do as much as you can, right? But I think realistically, you have to really balance um, privacy, e- ethics, and and just kind of like the perception of things. Even no matter what you say, there's the optics of things, how things look, how things feel to people. And if it just doesn't feel right to people, um, you're going to have to think about something else. Well, I mean, I think too, I mean, we we do a bunch of podcast interviews all over the Bay Area and the country. Um, the amount of times that we're logged into a physical handwritten security book is probably like 50%. It's like, probably not the best way to do things, right? Um, and uh, most of those are not managed by the companies that that they're using, right? I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do we get past some of those, like, rudimentary things? And then also, I want to look at, like, what does AI and machine learning kind of, what does that opportunity have in security where we can be predictive and proactive with this stuff? Yeah, I, I think the, the signing into, like, a visitor log is a good example, is that you are trusting that, thing, whether it be a platform, an application, and with your information. It could be as simple as signing into an actually handwritten book, but if the handwritten book um, gets stolen, all your stuff is gone. Yeah. Um, and so I think we, 
we are socialized to be okay with that. We are socialized to be able to like share our data in many places without thinking about the potential ramifications. And so in the ideal world, you would minimize how much you would share, but you also don't want to be in a bubble and not do anything. And so there is this balance between that. And so I think, you know, I think the future is reducing the amount of data that we share unless we have to. And then there's this concept of like central identity. Um, I think central identity is a concept that is really kind of inherent in companies um, where you, instead of logging into different things or different credentials, you have this like one central identity that helps you log in efficiently to many different things and is stored in one place. And so in order to like breach those things, you would have to actually breach that one like hardened thing um, versus breaching these things that may not be as hardened. And so if you kind of take that into the physical world as well, that same concept, you know, how can we actually take that and actually use that same framework in the real physical world? Um, and so what the, what was the answer to that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that everyone is trying to develop. And I think we kind of see this today with things like global entry and TSA pre, um, where you are sharing your deep details one time, um, and then you don't have to share it multiple times and then you are like trusted. Um, and so we need to look at things like trusted identity in the corporate world, trusted identity in the TSA pre-global entry world, and how can we actually apply that to just everyday life? Well, I mean, the iPhone or whatever, you know, phone, the the, the fingerprint edition, I think we can all, all agree is pretty slick, right? Yeah. Like, we're all pretty big fans of this. Yeah. Like, until there's some a downside, yeah. right? Until there's a massive, you know, breach or something like that. But I love logging into certain applications with my fingerprint, right? Yeah. I feel way better about that yeah. than entering a password. Like that's the sort of stuff where I think on the enterprise side, it's like I would love that seamless experience and I just don't really feel that way in most places that I go as in terms of physical security. Yeah, I, I think one of the barriers to that is open standards. Um, I think if we had more open standards for things, uh, you can then integrate anything to it. And I think when companies don't have open standards and things are more proprietary, you kind of get locked into like a smaller subset of things. Um, when people use open standards, you're then able to integrate with anything. And so I think when we talk about identity, I think the future is some type of open standard with identity that people can then build on top of. So you've, as we mentioned, you know, you've worked at some amazing companies um, that have really like pushed the boundaries of innovation. But what leads you to pursue an opportunity? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about higher purpose, but do you have any examples of how, you know, roles in your past have served some sort of higher purpose? Sure. I guess I'll tell you how I got interested in helping people. It actually started when I was in high school. Um, what high many. school did you go to? I went to Lowell High School, San oh, Francisco. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I won't tell you what class. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm a Lowell High School graduate. And uh, while I was attending Lowell, um, I was actually helping a friend of mine um, with a newspaper route near Park Merced, uh, near San Francisco State University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a high school kid, some people know what they want to do with their lives. I, at the time, still didn't know what I wanted to do. And something, an event that happened that really kind of framed why I think I'm so purpose-driven and why I am so focused on helping people. I was helping my friend with my paper, a paper route, and it was about 4 p.m. on a weekday. Um, and we were waiting at the, the Muni train stop. And at the time, I was wearing a, um, a San Francisco Giants parka. 
but it wasn't a starter jacket. It was actually a, a I guess, a higher end brand, yeah. higher than st- starter. Um, that was like well sought after and like unique. And we were waiting at the bus stop, uh, the train stop, and all of a sudden, twenty people started approaching me. I found out later that it was a gang, a local gang, and they were trying to take my jacket. And one thing led to another. Words were exchanged, and then we started fighting. And all I remember is getting pushed down to the ground. And as I was pushing myself back up, I blacked out. I just felt this sharp pain in the back of my head and I just blacked out. And my friend told me what had happened was as I was pushing myself up, one of the people had hit me on the back of the head and broke a 40 ounce beer bottle over the back of my head. Um, So that knocked me out. And then as I was following, someone hit me with another one and shattered another one over another part of my head. And so I was lying there, knocked out in a pool of blood. And it was about 4.30 at that time. And there was many people around leaving San Francisco State University, people getting off work. And my friend said, nobody helped me for probably about 15, 20 minutes. And so I'm lying there, blood gushing out of my head and all these people, nobody was helping me. And then I remember someone had picked me up and carried me across the street to SF State and then called SF State police and um, and SFPD. And I just remember that helpless feeling that I had when I kind of came to, um, I decided at that point that I wanted to devote my life to a career that helps people. Um, and so at the time that meant law enforcement and I just didn't want anybody else to have that helpless feeling that I had, um, when I was attacked. And so I kind of took that into my career and decided to join law enforcement. And so I was directly helping people, um, in law enforcement. Then I had a very difficult decision when I had to choose between staying with the Secret Service or going to work for Google. And I came to realize that the scope of helping people at Secret Service was awesome, but it was limited to the US. Yeah, um, It was limited to protecting whoever I was assigned to protect. I realized that working at Google allowed me to scale my efforts to protect people to the entire world because of Google scale. And I kind of kept that with me, I think, throughout my career that which is why I kind of look at the purpose um, of a company that I'm joining. Does it actually help people? And is it worth protecting? Because I think a lot of us have a lot of great skills and experience. And if you can actually fundamentally help people with that, it's an awesome feeling. Um, I think it's also okay to not do that and, and, and work for a company that is purely focused on just making money. And that's okay, but there comes a point in your career where you have to reevaluate what your own personal values are, what the impact that you're going to have on the world is, that you want to look back and maybe like tell your relatives, tell your kids, your grandkids, hey, I actually did this or I had a part in doing this. Um, I think that's an awesome thing that, that I think we should all strive for. When you were making that decision, how did it even come about that you had the decision to make to to go to Google versus stay in. It seems like it's, you know, <laughs> parallel worlds. Yeah. I mean, getting into the Secret Service was no easy task. And it, it was the dream job, uh, to be honest. You know, I, I went to college for criminal justice and Secret Service to me was the elite and pinnacle um, organization for law enforcement. Uh, it allowed me to do both investigations and protection at the same time. And then when the Google opportunity came up, 
how I knew people at Google was that Secret Service would would take protectees to Google for visits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very familiar with um, the some of the people at Google. At the same time, from an investigator perspective, we would work with Google on different investigations. Um, and so we would work with the, the legal team um, when anybody would say, for example, threaten the president um, using a Gmail account. Mm-hmm. Um, we would work with Google to, to get that information through legal process. If Google also wanted to talk about any information where they were a victim of a crime as a business, um, we would then meet with them and determine whether or not there is a valid investigation. So tech world wasn't like a, a new thing to me, so it wasn't as much of a shock. Um, I was familiar with them just because we had a lot of interactions with them. And then um, you know, as they were developing new products, one day they were like, hey, you know, we're creating this thing. At the time they called the GBuy, which eventually became Google Checkout. Um, we are anticipating we're going to get hit hard with a lot of fraud and abuse. And we could use someone with your skills to kind of help with that product. And then that turned into beyond that product and turned into kind of like what the team is today at Google. And so I'm very lucky. Uh, I think I'm very fortunate for that opportunity. Um, if that opportunity didn't come up, who knows? I could probably still be with the Secret Service today. What a world, huh? Um, it seems like you've worked in roles very purposely, obviously, you know, when you were evaluating these roles, did you feel like you were taking that kind of security, that trust framework with you in each role and kind of saying like, oh, well, this is how it could apply at Dropbox to cloud storage, or this is how it applies, you know, at Google or, or the White House or Planned Parenthood, like, or we work, like what were, what was kind of your thought process going into each of those roles of like, how do we evaluate you know, trust and security at these organizations, which essentially, you know, have a massive amount of trust and a, and a massive amount of like open trust. Like, you know, we work brand new people coming to, you know, the, whatever, hundreds of locations every single day, you know, Dropbox, people trust you to not lose your documents, um, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think every organization that I've been a part of, part of my evaluation is, is that trust aspect. Um, is it, is it complex? Is it challenging? And and is there impact to, directly to people? And I think in every organization I've been at, whether it be now a checker, whether it be at WeWork, Planned Parenthood, the White House, Dropbox, or Google, or even Secret Service, there's always a people component to that. Um, and there's also compelling challenges and sometimes things that haven't actually been solved yet. And so I find those very interesting when I can combine the people aspect and combine challenges and combine where we can actually apply technology to fundamentally help people. Um, I think I've been very thoughtful in the places that I've joined. And I think I've had an impact in all those places and an impact on the people that actually trust those places. Any stories that you have that you're particularly proud of for like, whether it's, you know, products, features, Anything like that? I don't know if I can single out any one thing, but I think a measure for success for any CISO, CSO, CIO, CTO, or any leader really, is that you've left that place in a better position than it was when you got there. Yeah, I totally agree. So you were the first security officer that WeWork ever hired. Um, you know, WeWork is, is one of the companies that I think has a massive goal and a massive opportunity to impact, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses and reimagine what a building, you know, is right from the, from the ground up leveraging technology, which I think is something, you know, we just haven't really ever thought about. We essentially have, you know, quote unquote, dumb buildings everywhere. Right. Um, 
with that, the level of security threats is like exponentially more complicated. What was kind of your your thought going into that role as, as why why it was exciting? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's always an honor and a privilege to be the first at anything. Um, I think being the first chief security officer at WeWork or being the first CISO at the White House um, or here at Checker being the first CTSO. Um, I think I go about it a, a similar way where you have to look at the current maturity of the trust system there. And so security compliance mm-hmm. and privacy. At WeWork, it was really focused on the physical security and the physical security technology aspect of trust um, because of a co-working space. Um, as opposed to the White House, the White House has also those those physical security concerns and issues um, and challenges, um, but also the data as well. And here at Checker, it's also a combination of the two. Uh, it's this evolution and, and, and culmination of digital and physical. And so I think WeWork and Checker are kind of like really blazing trails in this area as far as how do you actually apply the concepts from cybersecurity and information security? How do you apply the traditional controls from physical security and technology? And how do you innovate on those? Um, Here at Checker, it's the same thing. How do we actually use technology in a more fundamental way to actually evaluate the trust in people? And so I think that Whenever you go into a new place and you're the first or you're, you're the, this new role in a new department, it's really important to understand that culture of that company um, and understand that you can't just come in and change everything all at once. You have to do it in a phased approach and you have to do it in a balanced approach. You can't lock things down so much that nothing gets done. Um, whether it be in the physical world of WeWork, whether it be in the hiring world of Checker, whether it be in the the world of the White House, um, things still need to happen and things still need to operate. And so I think it starts with prioritizing, first doing an initial assessment of what the biggest risks are, where the current maturity level is, and then actually creating a strategy and tactical plans and then executing and implementing those. And then you use rinse and repeat. You do it all yeah. over again. And then when you go to a new organization as that first, whether it be CISO, CSO, CTSO, you do the same thing over and over again. And for me, even though I've been at places that have very different missions, very different focus areas, to me, it's all been the same. You kind of come in and do the same thing over again. Um, you come in and evaluate it. You see what the highest risks are. And then you actually implement um, things to make things better. And then now at checker you're able to do that you know at scale to thousands and thousands of customers that's really cool do you feel like you know from a security industry standpoint we know there's a massive need for you know cyber talent for security talent what's your advice to people that are you know maybe the the kids that that grew up where you on the same block where you grew up or or wherever it is in the world like what when you talk to them about pursuing a career in security what's your advice yeah, I would say understand what skills are required. I would. I'm, I'm not. I'm personally not a big fan of certifications. Um, I actually optimize on practical experience. So the more you can expose yourself to the cybersecurity, information security world, the better. This is um, the only type of cyber exposure that's a good kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that's that's actually a good point that you should stay stay on the good side and not go to the dark side <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, but I think in today's world, for example, with bug bounty programs, um, it's, it's pretty open world where you can be a, a white hat hacker. Um, in a positive way, and you can do a lot of research um, on anything, really, and get recognized for it and actually get paid for it through a bug bounty program. Um, and then you want, potentially want to take that into a career. I think there's also 
a lot of different degrees and certifications that you can get um, that are helpful when you're early in your career to just prove that you actually have the knowledge. And then once you are proven that you have that knowledge, someone will hopefully give you an opportunity to actually prove yourself and then you gain some experience. And so for me, you know, I didn't go to school for, for cybersecurity or information security. Um, I kind of learned as I went. Um, I'm, I'm super thankful for the Secret Service. Um, they afforded me a lot of training opportunities um, that really kind of accelerated my, my knowledge. Um, but I think my advice to people who either are early in their careers or are thinking about a career change is you don't necessarily need a security background to be in security, whether it be in cybersecurity, whether it be in physical security. It's more about the concepts of, of risk evaluation and risk remediation and apply, implementing controls and operations. And so a lot of people today say that there's a lack of talent in cybersecurity. That's true. There's probably a, a small pipeline of people um, that everyone is going after. But there's also people with skills that can actually be applied in the security world. Um, whether yeah, it be, like net new people. Yeah, whether it be you're an engineer, you're an analyst that aren't doing anything related to security, um, but it could be applied in security. And so I, I, people should not get frustrated when there isn't exactly a lot of people knocking on their door um, for whatever opportunity it is. You should actually take whatever skills you have and how do you apply it in that certain vertical or in that role. Um, and so I think that for me, I optimize on hiring, both on experience, but sometimes on potential. And so I'm more than happy to take someone with a strong skill set and a strong technical background and then frame them and mold them into a security person. Do you think that there just needs to be more like rotational programs and things like that? You know, we talked um, in an interview with Brett Taylor from uh, from Salesforce who he was on Marissa Meyer's first ever APM program. Like it seems like there just aren't enough like APM style rotational programs for uh, people who want to like dip that toe into, into cyber, just don't know how to start. Yeah. I think there needs to be more rotational programs. I think there needs to be more internships. I think there needs to be more education on cybersecurity, not just in, in college, but also in high school and maybe yeah. potentially in middle and elementary school as well. So I think if you develop a lot of those fundamental skills earlier on, um, it becomes easier as, as you kind of get started in your career. I would say also that, you know, even people in cybersecurity today can always use skills improvements as well. And so the more kind of training and staying on top of like what the most recent trends are, um, are always great. And I, I, I would, my recommendation to people that work in cybersecurity today is that you should really kind of look at growing. And some people specialize in like one very particular part of cybersecurity. Um, but I think what made me successful in my career is that I wasn't a master at just one thing. Um, I was a master, or if not, I had knowledge of many things. Um, and so don't don't try to like pigeonhole yourself into like one particular part, whether it be infrastructure security, whether it be application security, whether it be security operations, whether it be physical security technology. Um, if you have an interest in another part of security, explore that. Explore it and pursue it. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn about lightning fast employee experience. We love Salesforce. We love Salesforce platform. Check them out. Um, lightning fast employee experience, just like these lightning fast questions. Corey, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Oh, man. Most fun. Um, 
probably YouTube. Um, you know, some would say one of the social media, but you know, no matter what, we we all waste so much time on YouTube. There's just so much like good content on there, and it's always like new and refreshing content. I, I'm probably on YouTube more than I should be. What is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, recently. Um, or ever. The last podcast I listened to was yours. Oh, actually. there you go. I, I actually listened to an example one just to kind of see how this would go. Um, What'd you think? How do we do? <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. I actually learned something from it. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that's that's what we're out here doing. Um, favorite thing to cook or eat? You know, it's funny. I... I know it's supposed to be a lightning short answer, but, you know, after working in tech and you actually don't have to cook for yourself for a very, very long time, um, I actually maintain my cooking skills. And so I just like cooking as a whole. For me, it's therapeutic to cook um, versus either staying at work and eating and or going out. Um, I actually have fun cooking. Um, I went through my phase of, of Blue Apron and HelloFresh, but I've moved away from that um, and uh, kind of just, you know, cook, cook all kinds of foods. They do have good recipes. That was one of the things that I liked about that. That was like learning these new recipes and stuff. Um, what's your favorite San Francisco thing that people don't necessarily know about? Oh, wow. It's funny. I have visitors that come here a lot and I try to expose them to areas of San Francisco that aren't too touristy. Yeah. Um, and so I will take people to Fort Funston. Um, I will take them to Ocean Beach. Yeah. Um, I will take them to... To Carmel and Monterey. Yep. I think even San Franciscans themselves sometimes don't venture beyond San Francisco. Um, but I think there's a whole world of the Bay Area. Um, what I like about it is you have the city, but we're so close to nature. And so in 10 minutes, you can be away from the city and in nature and in all reality, just be more relaxed. Dude, I am like, <laughs> I, just, I just tweeted about this the other day. I have a personal umbrage of all the people who are like, you know, talking about how like, tech and startups and all this stuff should move out of San Francisco and move out of the, why would you ever live there? All this stuff because you're three hours from literally the most amazing things you could ever see in the world. The largest living organisms, like there's a forest of sequoia trees. That's two and a half hours away. There's, you know, like oceans and rivers and lakes and streams and stuff. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazing place if you like nature and for nothing else, like can't you can't buy that for all the money in the yeah. world you can't buy access to that stuff yeah i think we definitely take it for granted being in, in, in bay area we take we take the closeness to nature for granted um, for example i've only been to yosemite once yeah um and I need, I need to go more um i just went down to the sequoia national forest for the first time a few weeks ago um and it was awesome it's incredible I mean, you're standing there you're like there's you know 300 foot trees it's unbelievable yeah uh, but my recommendation to i think especially security people that when you need to de-stress Drive, whether it be 10 minutes, drive three hours to Tahoe, drive 10 minutes to the beach. Just just let your mind relax for a bit. That was definitely not lightning-y on my part. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I'm triggered, though. It's my one thing. I know uh, we have listeners from 129 countries, and so I understand that's not a reality for, for a lot of people. But um, but there's there's a ton of things that are in your backyard that are amazing wherever it is that you live. Yeah, and if you can't get to it, use technology like YouTube to, to watch it remotely. <laughs> That's true. Um, what thing are you most looking forward to for the future of technology? I think there is humanization of technology is, I think, upon us today. I think that a lot of technology in recent years has actually dehumanized people. So I think what you're going to see is a more connection between technology and hum humans and people. And so 
for example, you're probably going to see more technology that actually encourages physical, physical interaction yeah. versus encouraging digital or virtual interaction. Um, you're going to see more technology, much like Checker, that actually has direct impact in a positive way on people's lives. When we had our conversation with Phil, the CTO at Niantic, like that's their whole job is to leverage technology to get people out in the physical world. Like I think there's going to be so many more companies like that. Uh, what is your best advice for a first-time CIO or CISO or CTSO? Yeah, I, I think best advice would be breathe, one. Um, two is don't stray from your own personal values and your own personal mission and purpose, no matter what. Um, I think a lot of times we, you get surrounded by your new environment and you become that environment. It's great if that environment matches with you. But if it doesn't, you need to stay true to yourself and have your team emulate who you want to be. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I actually don't get asked a lot about the influence and impact that I have being an Asian American to other Asian Americans. Yeah, let's talk about it. What it, what What's the impact? What's the importance of that? I think it's super important because as I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of Asian American role models to look up to. Mm-hmm. I realize now, and sometimes I take it for granted, that I could be a role model to Asian Americans and just other people in general. But I think there is just a lack of, in any minority, there's sometimes just a lack of role models for them to look up to. Um, When I was in college, I was part of something called the Community Probation Program, um, where we helped um, youth that got into trouble um, become better people. And I really enjoyed that. Um, And so that mentoring aspect of it was awesome. And so I'm going to make a conscious effort to really kind of take the experience and take the platform that I have now um, with my career to be able to inspire other Asian Americans, either to get into the trust or security fields um, or to get into a field that they're passionate about. I know there's like a, you know, the typical Asian American parents um, that push their children into a very scientific field to become a doctor, a lawyer, um, an engineer. Um, but I think that there's other things out there. And so without having those role models, um, you may not ever discover that there's other things out there for you to do. And you might not even know that there's certain career paths. And so I think I was already unique. Um, There's not many Asian Americans in law enforcement. Um, So I think I I blazed the trail there. Um, And I think I'm continuing. Maybe just San Francisco. Um, But I feel that that there's just so much more that I should be doing and I could be doing to really inspire the next generation of Asian American leaders. I love it. Corey, you're the man. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Everyone should check out Checker if you haven't already. And we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, if you're looking for a place that is very mission driven, that you want to apply your technology skills, Checker is a very unique place. Um, I'm not just saying that because I work here. Um, I'm saying that because it's really difficult to find a technology company that really cares about people so much. Awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll link up the, the careers page as well um, uh, if you want to work on, on Corey's team. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out. Hey, good to meet you. Ian. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. 
Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.